0: Turn with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Again, that is the book of Romans, chapter 8. The book consists of five big, major sections. We are in the midst of the third section. It begins in chapter 6, verse 1, and continues right through to the end of chapter 8, And in this major section, again the third, in this epistle, uh, Paul deals primarily with the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of holiness. We began our study of this particular section in early January. And at that time, I asked you a question, and I think it is... An appropriate time occasion to repeat it and again ask each of us to consider it seriously and so here is the question is it possible God is calling your attention to something you have been neglecting is it possible God is calling your attention to something you have been neglecting I asked the question because I knew we were entering this section on sanctification, and I asked the question because I knew we were commencing a study of a specific book in our care groups by Kevin Day Young, The Hole in Our Holiness. And I knew we were entering a time, a season, in which this subject would be forefront in our minds, and I couldn't help but wonder to myself, is God trying to speak to us? And I think the, the answer, the obvious answer to the question is yes. And I think it is entirely possible that he wants to get our attention. I think it's entirely possible he is calling our attention specifically to something we have been neglecting. Let me state it in slightly different terms, the question. Let me state it as follows. Is it possible... You have been neglecting God's will for your life. When we hear and we use that phrase God's will, we normally think in terms of who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to work? What job am I supposed to take? Does God want me to do this? Does God want me to do that? That's fine, but it's all secondary. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul makes it very clear. This is God's will for your life. Your sanctification. That is God's will. It is His purpose. It is His design for you. He words it, Paul words it slightly different in his book to Titus, chapter 2. He writes the following The grace of God has appeared. He's referring to the Lord Jesus, His incarnation. He came into this world. He lived. He died. He rose again. He ascended. That is the appearing of the grace of God. Why? Paul says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We understand that. We get it. But Paul does not stop there. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world for two reasons, according to what Paul says there in Titus chapter 2. Reason number one, to save the lost, to rescue the perishing, amen, say we. Reason number two, and equally important, to train those whom he saves, to actually do something in us. To train us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We dare not divorce the two. My friend, you cannot have one without the other. He has come to do both in his people. To deal with the penalty of our sin. And to break the power of our sin. Oh, the doctrine of sanctification. Is it possible, my friend, that God is calling your attention to something you have been neglecting? Namely, his will for your life. Your sanctification. We arrive at this theme yet again in this major section. And Paul articulates it so eloquently in two verses, verses 12 and 13. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a name familiar to some of us, lived 50s, 60s, 70s, ministered at Westminster Chapel in London, England. In reference to these two verses, he stated the following. This is the most important statement with regard to the doctrine of sanctification in the whole Bible. Two verses. This is the most important statement with regard to the doctrine of sanctification in the whole Bible. I agree with him. The great English Puritan He was called the Calvin of England, John Owen. He wrote three key treatises on the doctrine of sanctification, one of them based solely on these verses. It's about 600 pages. 600 pages, I don't know how many words expounding, expounding the doctrine of sanctification as it is articulated in these t- two verses. I pray I've wet your appetite. Listen now to what Paul says, what he expresses beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There you have it. The doctrine of sanctification, as articulated by the Apostle Paul, as articulated by Scripture, and it is encapsulated in two key ideas, two key concepts. You have heard these before. If you've been here for the past couple of months, you have heard these before because Paul makes the exact same two points back in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Here they are, the two key points, the the hinge, if you like, upon which the doctrine of sanctification swings. Two key points. Number one, we must, we must We must know who we are in Christ. That is the first point. The second point is this. We must, we must, oh, we must be who we are in Christ. That's the doctrine of sanctification. A lot of people complicate it. It actually isn't very complicated. It rests on that foundation, two key concepts. I must know, I must know who I am as a Christian in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, I must act like it. I must be who I am in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those are the two key points Paul makes in these verses. He makes the first in verse 12. We must know who we are. Look at what he says. So then, brothers, we are debtors, we must know who we are. What does he mean specifically? Hone in on the first two verses. He's building a bridge, isn't he? So then, in other words, what I am about to say flows from what I've just said. What I'm about to say in these first two verses, you're not going to get it if you don't understand what I have stated in the preceding verses. And in the preceding verses, you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 18, right through to here, what has Paul done? He has explained the gospel. If you just peer back into the immediate context and only go as far back as verse 1, you discover what? Paul has just explained, he has articulated the gospel. So then, in light of the gospel, brothers, if you get the gospel, if you understand it, if you know it, you will grasp this. We are debtors. What I have done for us this morning, as I have tried to articulate the gospel on the screen behind me, you go back again, back to chapter 1, verse 18. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the, Verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And Paul unpacks that statement all the way, way up to chapter 8, verse 11. And in those first 11 verses of chapter 8, we have it all articulated in very clear terms. Here it is, the gospel. We go right back to the beginning. Adam and Eve, created by God. Adam and Eve, back in the garden, enjoyed two things, two privileges, unimaginable really. Privilege number one, top left corner, they enjoyed God's favor. God saw all that he had made, including the first man and the first woman, and he declared, it is very good. And his countenance shone upon them. They enjoyed his favor. They walked with him in the garden. The second thing they enjoyed was God's image. He made them to be a mirror. That is to mirror his likeness. Not physical, visible, tangible. His likeness. God is spirit. No, he made them to be a mirror. That is as an image of his goodness and his holiness. Oh, he made them upright. And he set them there in the garden and bestowed these great gifts upon them, his favor and his image. He made a covenant with Adam, a covenant of works. You see that tree? Don't eat of it. We know what happened. We know the implications because Paul expresses them there at the end of the fifth chapter, doesn't he? That Adam disobeyed. And when Adam disobeyed, he did so as the head of humanity. And God charged Adam's sin to all of his descendants. God charged the penalty for Adam's sin, death, condemnation, judgment to all of his descendants. And so because of Adam, death came into the world following hot on the heels of sin and transgression. And what was the result? Rather than God's favor... Mankind, every human being who has ever lived, save one, the Lord Jesus. We'll get to him in just a moment. Every other human being was born under a condition, in a state, a status of condemnation. They have lost God's favor. No one by nature enjoys or experiences God's favor. Not only that, but they lost God's image. His favor replaced with condemnation, his image replaced with corruption. You want a concise description of that corruption? You go back to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, and there Paul makes it clear, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does any good. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. You look at that line, condemnation, corruption. Do you know what word Paul uses to describe that state? It is the word flesh. That, my friends, is the flesh. We are flesh. We are born in a state of condemnation. God's favor, gone. His disfavor is what we experience. We're born children of wrath. And his image is gone, almost obliterated. It has been corrupted. But God has made another covenant. He has made this other covenant with another head of humanity, a new humanity. He has made this covenant with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the covenant is very simple. Christ has done what Adam failed to do. And Christ loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Christ bore the penalty for Adam's transgression, for every transgression, for every sin, whereby all who repent of their sin. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They become one with Christ. And Christ becomes unto them. Life. And the condemnation is removed. And there is restoration. What is restored? God's favor. Because the penalty of sin. Is paid for. In Christ. Therefore the penalty is. Removed. That is known as the doctrine of sanctification. But equally true, equally important, because we are now in Christ, not only does he restore God's favor, the Spirit of God now renews God's image in us. It's a process. It's a process that will only reach its final culmination in glory. And here he deals not with the penalty of sin, But the power of our sin. This is not the doctrine of justification. This is the doctrine of sanctification. My friends, this is the gospel. The left side of the screen is not the gospel. The right side of the screen is not the gospel. That is the gospel. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He is my priest and king. He deals with the penalty of my sin. That's justification. It's my condition in the sight of God. And he deals with the power of my sin. That is sanctification. Paul has said all of that in the first 11 verses. He has explained justification right there in the very first verse. What has he declared? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the left side of the screen. I what, God's favor. Adam enjoyed it back in the garden. He lost it. And none of his descendants have ever had it. We've been born under, in a state of condemnation. But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he has dealt with the penalty of our sin. He bore it in full upon Calvary's cross. Therefore, God's favor is restored. That's verse 1. But you look at verse 4. What does Paul say? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so Christ's death, burial, and resurrection not only dealt with the penalty of my sin, but deals with the power of sin. Christ's death, burial, resurrection not only restores God's favor, but it begins the renewal of God's image. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then he goes on, and we saw this last Lord's Day, verses 9 through 11 more or less. He describes our present condition. Look, he says, your body is dead, Christian. Your body is dead. It's still under the sentence of death incurred back in the garden. You are going to die. The body is dead because of sin. Oh, but the spirit, the soul is alive because of righteousness. And so, yes, our bodies will expire, but our souls are already alive. We're already counted righteous in the sight of God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves now in this process of renewal, sanctification, little by little, waiting, longing, yearning, anticipating that day. What day? We will die. Our bodies will be buried. Our souls will ascend on high. And then the trumpet blast will sound. Christ will descend. Accompanied by a host of his redeemed ones. And my glorified soul will be reunited with my glorified body. And I will be perfectly conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will inherit a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. That is the gospel. So... Then, are you getting it now? There's a link right there at the outset of verse 12 of chapter 8. So then, in light of everything on the screen, in light of justification and sanctification, now you get who you are, brothers. Here's who we are. We are debtors. We sing it. Stanza from that beautiful hymn. We're actually going to sing it later when we conclude our service. But here's just a beautiful stanza. O to grace, how great a debtor! Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. We are debtors. We are Christians. We are in Christ Jesus. We now know God's favor. And we are now being renewed in God's image. That is the first key concept of the doctrine of sanctification. We must know who we are in Christ. The second you already know it, it flows from the first. Here it is again. We must be who we are. In Christ, so then, brothers, we are debtors. We know who we are in the Lord Jesus. Now we must act like it. Lloyd Jones, I made reference to him earlier. He gives an example, an illustration, while trying to explain this. It goes as follows. He says, is it, "It is said that when, after the American Civil War, slavery was abolished, many of the slaves in the Southern states did not realize." that they were now at liberty and had freedom. They had lived for such a long time in the old way as slaves, with masters over them, that they were still in fear. But as a result of the war and the victory of the North, slavery was abolished, and they were free men. But as they did not realize that fact, some of them went on living as if they were still slaves. In order to set matters right, you do not tell such people to seek some new experience. All that is necessary is to say to them, by law, by enactment of Congress, there is no longer such a thing as slavery. You are a free man. Behave as a free man. Do not go on living as a slave now that you are free. That is the simple argument Paul uses here. Christian, my fellow brothers, my fellow sisters in the Lord, do you know who you are? Act like it. That is the doctrine of sanctification. What does it look like to act like it? Give me some specifics. That's what Paul now does in the 13th verse. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I want you to notice four things. I mean, this this sentence, I'm thinking primarily of where Paul begins with the word if, second instance, but if, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That phrase right there is pactful, pactful. I want to break it down for us by emphasizing four components, four parts. First of all, Paul speaks of an agent, an agent, a doer if you like. The agent. What am I talking about? Look at this start of the phrase. If by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, you, you guessed it, that's you. All right? There are two agents then. There is the principal or primary agent, the Holy Spirit. And so this is a work. He's going to describe sanctification. This is a work of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of light. He gives light to his people, whereby we see and we sense our sin. He is the spirit of life, whereby he has implanted a new principle in us, a new inclination, whereby our hearts are turned away from the world and sin, and turned heavenward. And he is the spirit of love, whereby he heightens, our appreciation of God's love for us. He is the principal agent, but notice, please, there is a subordinate agent, if by the Spirit you. The work of sanctification is a work of the Spirit of God in that grace is all of God, and He provides the strength. Yet grace is a work, sanctification, is a work of the individual, whereby in response to the grace of God, in response to the work of the Spirit of God in us, we are commanded to obey. And we are commanded to act. If, by the Spirit, you... Peter states it as follows. Listen to these words. 2 Peter 1.3 God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So as a Christian, you've got everything you're going to get this side of glory. Do you realize that? You've got everything you're going to get. Everything necessary for sanctification already resides within you. His name is the Holy Spirit. God has given us, granted us, all things that pertain to life and godliness. So much misunderstanding here. I dare not get off on a tangent. But at the same time, I must proclaim, I must declare the following. My friends, when it comes to sanctification, you do not need a personal counselor. You really don't. You do not need an exceptional experience. You most certainly don't need a second blessing. There is nothing you lack when it comes to sanctification. God has already given everything to you, the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, we are now commanded to act. Here's the problem, all right? And here's where the gloves come off. Here's the problem. It's summarized well in Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. That's our problem. That's our struggle. The soul of the sluggard craves. Oh, yeah, he craves something. He wants something, but he gets nothing. Why? Because he doesn't act. He doesn't do anything about it. Just this craving. He's always whining and grumbling and complaining. Oh, I wish I had that. Oh, I wish I had this. Oh, I wish I could do that. But he gets nothing. While the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Oh, hear these words, J.C. Ryle. Put them on your refrigerator. Write them in your Bible. Put them on the steering wheel of your car. Look at these words and hear these words daily. The pursuit of holiness is a battleground, not a playground. Oh, we love ease. We're so lazy. I know I am. We love ease. We want things just to come Easily. What do you mean this might actually require some effort on my part? This might actually require some sacrifice? This might actually necessitate me giving up some things? This, God's actually calling me to engage in a battle? In a battle, people die. That's Paul's point. In this spiritual battle, sins must die. We must act. J.C. Ryle, he adds the following. There is no holiness without warfare. It is is impossible. There is no holiness without warfare. There is no sanctification apart from effort. There is an agent involved. Yes, we work. We do so in response to the Holy Spirit. God has given us all that we need. And God now commands us to get busy. And he commands us to act. The second component in this phrase is the act itself. You've got the first, the agent, if by the spirit you. So there's a principal agent and a subordinate agent. Now look at the act itself. Put to death. It's where we get that word mortify, to kill. So this is what we actually do. We're putting something to death. Notice grammatically, it is in the present tense, Very important. Why? Because Paul is explaining the fact that this is an ongoing act. Okay, look at me now, everybody, please. This is not a one-off. This is not a one-time blessing. This is not some altar experience where now finally I've laid it all on the altar and I've made Christ my Lord and everything's going to be great. No, 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 no. Paul is expressing a continuous action. You must act. You must put to death. And then you know what you must do? You must put it to death. Then you know what you must do? You must put it to death. And after that, put it to death. And when you're finished doing that, put it to death. He is describing an ongoing, habitual, repetitive process which we enter into for the remainder of our days here on earth. I liken it to shaving. If you don't like the whiskers, what do you do? You shave them. And the next morning, guess what? They're back, so what do you do? You shave them. The next morning, do I need to explain this? The next morning, what do you do? You shave them. That's Paul's point. Put it to death today. And tomorrow, you know what I want you to do? I want you to put it to death. Tuesday, put it to death. Wednesday, put it to death. Johnny, one note. He does not veer from it. Put to death, continually, put it to death, sin. I put together a slide to help us understand this a little bit of exactly what Paul has in view. And I'm going to try to summarize it in five, five statements, five commands from Scripture. And I'm going to go through these quickly. But I wanted to give you something to walk away with today. Something to meditate on during the week. Okay, putting it to death. Exactly how is this going to play out? What is this going to look like in, in my life today or, or tomorrow when I wake up? Here you go. Number one, purpose not to sin. Great way to start the day. Decide not to sin. Psalm 119, 106. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your Righteous rules. That is a daily attitude before the Lord. We resolve to put it to death. We resolve not to sin. Another one. Consider your ways. A little bit of self-examination. Never hurt anyone. (laughs) Psalm 119 verse 59. When I think on my ways. So when I take stock. And I ask myself, what have I been doing? What have I been feeling? What have I been thinking? Well, this leads me to turn my feet, turn away from sin, and turn to what? Your testimonies, your word. Consider your ways. Guard your senses. The five inlets to the soul. Job 31, verse 1. I have made a covenant. With my eyes, I'm going to do that Monday morning. I'm going to repeat it Tuesday morning. I'm going to do it Wednesday morning. I'm making a covenant. I'm swearing before God. I'm putting it to death that my senses are not going to be inlets of sin into the soul. Here's number four: Keep your heart. Proverbs four twenty three: Keep your heart with all vigilance. What is it you want? What is it you desire? What is it you dream about? Note where you're careless and the heart wanders. For from it flows the springs of life. Abstain. Another good one. 1 Peter two eleven, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So again, recognize, understand who you are in this world. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain. Stop it, in other words not very profound. Let me repeat it again. You do not need a personal counselor to do this. You do not need some exceptional emotional spiritual experience to do this. You do not need a second blessing to do this. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, the Holy Spirit. He now calls us to act upon it. He now calls us to obey. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Just stop it. Which wage war against your soul. And here's one more example Avoid Ephesians 5, 11 and 12. Take no part. I have nothing to do with it. Take no part. In the unfruitful works of darkness. But instead expose them. And the Bible is chock full of such exhortations. Absolutely full of such commandments. Spoken to the believer. Spoken to the individual, the man, the woman, who knows who he, she is in Christ. Knows they are a new creation in Christ. Knows they are one with Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. Know that Christ has dealt with the penalty of sin. There is no condemnation. That's restoration. And he has broken the power of sin. He's renewing us in the image of God. This ongoing process of renewal. I understand it. These commands are directed to us. Oh, my friends. You know what this gets called so much today? And it's a misnomer. It gets called legalism. It is not legalism. It is biblical Christianity. It is the essence of godliness. Is get up and get busy. You're a Christian? Act like it. Heed the command of the Lord and obey it. By the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. That is not legalism. That is grace in action. And that is us fulfilling God's will for us. Our sanctification. There's a third component in that little statement. You've got the first, the agent. If by the Spirit, you. You've got the act put to death. Now the object. What specifically? Right there in the verse. The deeds of the body. That can be a little misleading. You keep it in the context of what Paul has said to this point. In this epistle, it becomes clear that sins, he calls sins the deeds of the body simply because they are executed by the body. But they do not arise from the body. The body is not our principal problem. The problem is much deeper. It resides within. The body is simply the outlet. The Lord Jesus himself made that clear in Mark 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit. Sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The object of mortification, yes, the deeds of the body, but recognizing where they come from. I have given this. A lot of thought over the years. And I came up with something recently. I don't think it'll be a stumbling block. I hope it will help us just to envision exactly what it is we're trying to put to death. And here it is by way of a slide. Does everyone recognize what that is on the right side of the screen? It's a tree. And you have the foliage, right? The twigs. And branches all meet where? In the trunk, and the trunk down where? To the roots. I want you to think of the object of mortification in terms of a tree. Are you with me? In terms of a tree. I want you to start at the bottom, and on the left side, start at the bottom. Here is the principal object of mortification what it is we are called daily to put to death, the root, self-love, carnal self-love. Do you remember? Adam and Eve were created in a position of God's favor, and they were created in the image of God, and they loved God. When they fell, God's favor was lost. God's image was lost. And ever since Adam and Eve, we've all been born in the flesh. Condemnation and corruption. What does Paul make explicitly clear just a few verses earlier in this chapter? The flesh is hostile to God. That is the starting point. My friend, if you're not a Christian, that is the starting point you need to understand that by nature you dislike God. Matter of fact, that's an understatement. By nature in the flesh, you actually despise God. And you are in the grips of carnal self-love. You love yourself. And you want what you want for yourself. And there is self-preoccupation. And there is just self-consideration and self-exaltation. Even as Christians, it continues on, doesn't it? And daily, it must be the principal object of mortification, what we put to death, this root of self-love. And we do so by looking to Christ. Because if there is anyone who ever lived a selfless life, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who emptied himself, who gave himself, who came as a servant, never a selfish thought, but reckless abandonment almost, as he came to fulfill the will of his father. You move up. The roots feed what? The trunk. Carnal self-love feeds what? Carnal passions. We heard some of them from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Envy. Rage. Rage. Spite, anger, bitterness, greed. These are things that arise from carnal self-love. And we feel these things. We experience these things. We must put them to death daily. How do we do that? You look to the Lord Jesus. He knew nothing of any of those things. Envy, bitterness, wrath, anger. No, he was one who lived in complete submission to the will of his father. And out of love for his father, perfect conformity to his law. The trunk moves up, and there it spreads into branches. And these branches correspond to what? Carnal actions, sexual immorality, right? Adultery, pornography, theft, deceit, expressions of rage, desires for control, how we treat people or how we speak to others, things that actually come out now and are expressed. They flow from what? These branches flow from the trunk. Carnal actions from, come from carnal passions. The trunk comes from what? It's fed from what? The roots, carnal self-love. And so we mortify self-love. We mortify carnal passions. We put to death carnal actions. And then we get out to the twigs and the leaves, the foliage out there. And there we have carnal dispositions. You've got wandering thoughts. Some of you right now, the past half an hour, you just confirmed it. Your mind has been wandering. The way you've gone here, there, dare I say, imagining all sorts of silly scenarios that you place yourself in the center of, testifying to what, in case you were in any doubt, your carnal self-love, your absolute self-absorption, that even in the inner recesses of your mind and all those places you go and scenarios you imagine, you always find yourself somehow in the middle of them, a wandering thoughts Carnal relationships, careless attitudes, all these dispositions or things, roving eyes, these things which become inlets for sin, they are fed from what? They are fed from carnal actions, which are fed from carnal passions, which are fed from carnal self-love. As we deal with the root and then the trunk and then the branches, we find that these dispositions are put in their proper place and we mortify them. And then there's one more thing absent from the diagram. You know what it is? Birds. Imagine a couple birds flying around. Those are temptations. Understand this. Temptation is not the problem. If I am daily mortifying carnal self-love, the root, carnal passions, the trunk, carnal actions, the branches, and carnal dispositions, the foliage, guess what? The birds won't find any place to rest their feet. That's the way it works. Far too often we begin externally and move down. No, 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 no. Evil comes from within. This is the object of mortification. This tree. Helpful, I pray. Very helpful for me. As daily I seek to walk despite my constant failures and shortcomings, and my absolute dependence upon the grace of God as I struggle homeward, thinking in these terms and seeking to put to death day after day after day carnal self-love, carnal passions, carnal actions, dispositions, and ultimately being unresponsive to temptations. That is the object of mortification. The fourthly, the motive. He gives a motive. We're clear on the agent, the spirit, principal agent. We're the subordinate agent. We know what the act is. We're trying to put it to death. Overthrow its dominion day after day after day after day. We now know what we're after. These deeds of the body rooted in carnal self-love. The motive. Give me a little motivation here, Paul. I need a little shot in the arm. Comes right at the end. It's a matter of fact. It goes right back to what he says in the middle of the verse. If by the Spirit, if it at the start of the verse, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You see, if you live according to the flesh, if your mind is set on the flesh, and if that is how you live, and if that is the course of your life, you testify to the fact that you're not actually in Christ. You testify to the fact that, well, the reason you don't know who you are is because you are not in Christ. You testify by the, by the common recurring disposition of your soul and the inclination of your heart over extended long period of time. That you, although you may say you understand the gospel, my friend, you do not understand the gospel. That's Paul's point. And you are still under condemnation. If, if you live according to the flesh, that means you have your mind set upon the flesh. That means you are void of the spirit of God. That means you're still in a condemned state. You are dead. But all those who are led by the spirit of God, those who, are, who have the spirit of God within, they put to death the deeds of the body. And here's the motivation. Oh, you will live. If you ever tried to give a young one uh, a pill. Medication. And some of those pills are just ghastly, right? So, what do you do? Uh, what do we do? Don't judge us. You, smore, you smear a bunch of jam on there, right? Something sweet. And you just ram it in there. And it makes the pill go down easily. That's what Paul's doing here. Mortification is a pill, friends. It is a battleground, it is difficult. And it requires effort. And it's two steps forward, one step back. And there's repentance along the way. And it's day after day after day. And it can be wearying and tiring. But the whole pill is smothered with jam. You will live. He holds out hope to us. He is not speaking of life here in terms of cause and effect. Cause and effect is the doctrine of justification. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have life because we're in Christ Jesus. The penalty of our sin has been paid for. The sentence has been changed from death to life. Here he is talking in terms of a means to an end. That all those who are justified, God will sanctify. They will walk, however poorly and feebly at times. They will walk according to the spirit. They will put to death the deeds of the body. And the result, the hope held out to them is such reward. It is eternal life. Oh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, grieve, weep over their sin. Why? They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in their daily experience. Why? They shall be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. Blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? They shall be called the sons of God. And blessed even are those who are persecuted because of what they look like in the Lord Jesus. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is motivation day after day to get after it and to put into practice to be who we are, realizing, knowing who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me sum it all up and let me conclude it as follows. By quoting from the book many of us are studying on Wednesday nights, The Whole in Our Holiness, Kevin Day Young writes the following. Hear these words. I think it's my favorite phrase, paragraph out of the entire book. God speaking to Christians, in effect, he says to us, Because you believe in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, I have joined you to Christ. That's precious. When he died, in my reckoning, you died. When he rose, you rose. He's in heaven, so in my reckoning, you're in heaven. He's holy, so you're holy. Your position right now, objectively and factually, is as a holy, beloved child of God, dead to sin, alive to righteousness and seated in my holy heaven. Doesn't stop there. God continues. Now, act like it. That's the doctrine of sanctification. We put to death the deeds of the body, because we are debtors. We know who we are in Christ Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit now, you might bless your word to each and every heart. You're aware of each and every condition, you know the wayward, and we pray that you might draw them back tenderly. You know those unbelievers in our midst this day, and we pray that you would convict them of sin and convince them of the truth. We know of those who are troubled, and we pray that you might comfort them. Those who are anxious, that you might still and quiet their hearts. Those who are confused, that you might bring greater understanding and illumination. And we seek all of these things from your hand, by your word, and we ask it in Christ's matchless name. Amen.